A quick note before we start. This episode includes a brief description of sexual assault that some listeners might find upsetting. If you'd rather skip it, I'll flag it again when we get there. This is Abdueli Ayup and his young daughter. Abdueli grew up and spent a lot of his life in the Chinese territory of Xinjiang. Xinjiang is home to about 12 million Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are a Muslim minority. Their language is similar to Turkish. And for decades, they've been persecuted inside China by the Communist Party's attempts to assimilate them. Abdueli lived in a city called Kashgar, which is closer to Baghdad than Beijing. He lives in Norway now with his family. He's been teaching the Uyghur language to his daughter. If your if your homeland is if your homeland is what is um um is peaceful is peaceful yeah safe so far safe and my uh, daughter asked me dad my friends no one speak Uyghur here what are you doing and I told her that because of my mom taught me when I was young. Maybe she know uh, this language will not exist anymore. But she still keep teaching me. I am doing the same thing to you. Maybe it's not useful. But like, if you call me dad, I cannot feel I'm your daddy. And if you call me Dada in Uyghur, I feel I'm real dad for you. Why do we learn Uyghur? Since then, since if we don't learn it, then we can't speak to our people. So um, this is the language of love, not the language of school, not the language of your daily life. This is the language of love between us. I'm Su Lin Wong. From The Economist, this is The Prince, a podcast about China's leader, Xi Jinping. Episode 6, Seeds of a Pomegranate. Xi Jinping's China puts the interests of the many over the rights of the few. And it defines those interests narrowly. Security and prosperity. What does that mean for those in the minority? And those who speak out for them? both in China and abroad. Let's learn this, this poetry. Abdueli is a linguist and a poet. 
In the early 2010s, he founded Uyghur language schools, including a kindergarten in Kashgar. He'd grown up near the city. Then he lived abroad for a while to study, in Turkey, then in the US. By the time he returned in 2011, China had a new leader in waiting. Some Uyghurs discussed that maybe Xi Jinping will um, good to Uyghur. They made assumptions about Xi Jinping based on his father, Xi Zhongshun. This happened a lot around the time of Xi becoming leader. Xi Senior, as a high-ranking party boss, had taken a soft touch with leaders of China's ethnic minority groups. So Uyghurs uh, told that story to me and said that he's going to uh, treat better than other rulers. When did things start to change? It started to change uh, after I became really famous. <laughs> He'd gotten some press attention for his new schools. Probably too much attention, in retrospect. State security agents started showing up at his office. And they warned me that uh, not to accept interview from international media. And uh, I didn't, actually. I refused it. those media attention because I know it is dangerous. And then they came again and they like asked me to provide information about my uh, students. Police visited repeatedly over the next couple of years. Meanwhile, friends who worked in IT, who'd helped the party build up its local tech infrastructure, were getting worried. And not just for Abdueli. People said that the WeChat is monitoring us. People in China called WeChat the app for everything. Messages, social media posts, payments. You can even trade stocks on it. It's hard to survive in China without WeChat. So if you're being watched on the app, your whole digital existence is exposed. Everything you are talking about, sharing and your posting and your like videos, everything. But at the time, I didn't believe it because I felt that millions of Uyghur living there. How can those police manage to listen to every Uyghur and uh, how can they manage to um, analyze such a big data? Abdueli's friends who worked in tech, they were among the first to leave China during Xi's campaign against the Uyghurs. They could sense what was coming. Around the middle of 2013, a car pulled up to Abdueli's school. No license plates. For me, it's not a big deal because I couldn't remember how many times I got arrested. I got arrested several times, but when I get in the car, they first pasted my mouth with the plastic and then they put black hood on my face and then they handcuffed me and chained my feet. That hadn't happened before. They took him to his apartment, which was already surrounded by police vehicles. And they asked me, uh, we give you a chance to see your uh, family members last time, like uh, see your family last time. Yeah, I saw my wife and she's, she was crying, holding my daughter at that time. She was five months old. My second one, five months old. My first one is six years old at that time. They searched his apartment while Abdueli could only look through the tinted car window at his family. 
At a detention facility, they strapped into a chair by his ankles, his wrists and his neck. They told him they'd gone through his private messages, surveilling him, just as his friends had warned. Officially, his alleged crime was falsely reporting his company's investments. This is a common way the party goes after its critics. And they said that you are a foreign agent. You studied at the United States and you came to China as a CIA spy, CIA agent, to incite separatism among the Uyghurs. I said, I have nothing to do with politics and I have nothing to do with building a country or independence or something like that. No. I told them that why I came back from the United States because of my daughter lost the language. She couldn't even pronounce my name in Uyghur. Abdueli would spend the next 15 months shuttled between detention centres, interrogated repeatedly and tortured. For centuries, Chinese emperors and Central Asian powers fought for control of Xinjiang. China's last dynasty conquered Xinjiang in the 18th century and ruled there until it fell. Almost 40 years passed before the Communist Party took power in 1949. It too seized control of Xinjiang. It encouraged mass migration of China's Han ethnic majority to the region. Incentive programs have continued to lure Han Chinese there as the party suppresses the Uyghur identity. That's led to insurgencies by Uyghur nationalists including during Xi's early years in office. In Urumqi, Beijing and Kunming, hundreds of people died as cars ripped through crowds, bombs exploded in public spaces and attackers with knives stabbed civilians. Xi Jinping was actually in Xinjiang around the time of one attack, in 2014. He was on his first visit there since becoming leader. The New York Times would later reveal secret speeches Xi gave at the time. In one, he urged party members to be on guard against the insurgents, who he referred to as religious extremists. We must be as harsh as them, he said, and show absolutely no mercy. He suggested the party emulate America's war on terror. Xi later told a leadership conference in Beijing, the weapons of the People's Democratic Dictatorship must be wielded without any hesitation or wavering. In public speeches, Xi Jinping tends to frame his Xinjiang policies in terms of ethnic harmony. Xi's got a favourite metaphor for them. He's used the same one for ethnic minorities in Tibet and in Mongolia, that all groups should be like the seeds of a pomegranate, bound tightly together inside one Chinese nation. Xi Jinping, the boy caught up in the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, is now a leader, hell-bent on social stability. We had indoctrination, for example, that every room we have TV screen and you have to listen to Chinese propaganda, for example, that Uyghur are backward before 1949, and Uyghur are slaves before 1949, before Chinese Communist Party came. They call Uyghurs after 1949 liberated Uyghurs. The indoctrination would go on for 12 hours a day, often into the evening. 
and then uh, this section of writing confession and you have to tell that you are criminal and uh, this is the scoring system and uh, your food your treatment are depending on your score and if you are worst you can have only one meal in the evening what came next was a level of brutality he wasn't expecting again a warning the next minute is the part you may want to skip they asked me to took off the clothes and i did and like when they asked me to like took off my underwear i feel little bit strange because all like about 20 or 15 they are surrounded me just laughing at me and i don't know what what's happening there and I, I, they asked me to bow down and then i i realized something was wrong it's going to happen so um, i peed and i vomited i have seen there is a swiper something you swipe the room what do you call that like a a broom or a mop yeah broom yeah 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 but it's plastic very short and plastic and those guys are laughing and they said that he is so weak i feel uh, like how can i die like look around and there is nothing around me and the fly flying over my head zing zing something i feel hmm. the fly is better than me the fly is better than me he can fly and he can he can move and it is it is heartbreaking you cannot live as a human being and you cannot die as a human being you have to live there Abdulli agreed to plead guilty for his alleged financial crimes. He was released in late 2014, but his criminal record and constant police surveillance made life difficult. He and his family made it out to Turkey, then on to Norway a few years later. Now, from there, he writes and does interviews about the conditions of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And things have gotten much worse. As many as a million Muslims, maybe more, are estimated to have gone through detention camps that administer the kind of indoctrination and torture Abdulli experienced. From Xi Jinping's point of view, it's better to turn nearly the entire region into a brutal network of prison camps than to risk allowing a Uyghur insurgency to develop, even if the repression is what caused the insurgency in the first place. My friends and journalists always ask that question. why are you doing this because at the time it happened to me but now it happened to thousands of people maybe 100,000 of people you mean the way you were tortured the way you were physically abused the way you were sexually abused has happened to thousands if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Interesting. Nobody, nobody, nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You you bring it up because you really what? care and I think it's nice that you care. The rest of us don't care. 
Chamath Polyhapatia is a billionaire venture capitalist in the United States. He's also the co-host of a tech podcast called All In. That's where he said this in January of 2022. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth, okay? Of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line, okay? Oh, of all the things that's... that I care about, it is below my line. Above his line? Supply shortages at grocery stores, healthcare infrastructure, climate change. But if you're asking me, that, do I care about a segment of a class of people in another country? Not until we can take care of ourselves will I prioritize them over us. Polly Hapatia is a part owner of the National Basketball Association's Golden State Warriors. The Warriors posted a statement to call him a limited investor who had no day-to-day -day operating duties and who did not speak for the organization. Polly Hapatia then tweeted to, quote, recognize that I came across as lacking empathy. To be clear, he wrote, my belief is that human rights matter, whether in China, the United States, or elsewhere, full stop. But for all the moralizing over Polly Hapatia's lack of empathy, his big mistake might have been saying the quiet part out loud. There is a line, with Abdueli and the Uyghurs somewhere below it, particularly, it turns out, in the NBA. Professional American basketball has become a case study in how the Communist Party controls what foreigners can and can't say about China. Between Donald Trump's presidency and the Black Lives Matter movement, NBA players have had a lot to say in the last few years. Not everyone's wanted to hear it. After the superstar LeBron James criticised Trump in 2018, a Fox News host, Laura Ingram, famously said this about outspoken basketball stars. You're great players, but no one voted for you. So keep the political commentary to yourself, or as someone once said, shut up and dribble. But Adam Silver, the NBA's commissioner, defended players who wanted to talk politics. I encourage all of you not to stick to sports. Do not stick to sports. Embrace it, celebrate it, and let's use it to build bridges and bring people together. When NBA games resumed after COVID first broke out, the phrase Black Lives Matter was painted across the courts. And players could replace their jersey names with words like equality, anti-racist, and I can't breathe. But not every kind of commentary has been welcome in the league. On Friday, Daryl Morey tweeted this image that says, quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. They in 2019, Daryl Morey, general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted his support for protesters in Hong Kong. And his comments unleashed a wave of anger in China. Now, China State broadcaster stopped airing NBA games because of it. And that was no small punishment. Over the 2018 and 2019 season, the league says 800 million people watched NBA programming in China. Daryl Morey apologised. He backtracked. Players weighed in to say he shouldn't have tweeted that stuff in the first place. One of those players was LeBron James. We all do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen. There's that line. Black Lives Matter on one side, Hong Kong on the other. Consider Joe Tsai, the billionaire owner of the NBA's Brooklyn Nets. In 2020, his charitable foundation pledged $50 million for racial justice causes in the United States. Tsai also happens to have made his billions as a co-founder of Alibaba, China's version of Amazon. Alibaba has invested in some of China's biggest surveillance technology companies. 
the government uses them to repress one of its own racial minorities, the Uyghurs. After Daryl Morey's tweet about Hong Kong, Joe Tsai published an open letter accusing Morey of, quote, supporting a separatist movement. The American broadcaster CNBC later asked Joe Tsai for his thoughts on China's human rights abuses. You have to be specific on what human rights abuse you're talking about, uh, because the China that I see, uh, the, the large number of the population, I'm talking about 80, 90 percent of the population, are very, very happy with the fact that their lives are improving every year. It's tyranny in the name of the majority. Chinese officials insist on a single metric for their rights record in Xinjiang, economic growth. In response to questions we submitted to the Chinese government, Zhu Lingjun from the Central Party School, the party's top think tank, told us, We believe the most important standard for political rights should be stability and order. To achieve this, we must rely on economic development and making the cake bigger. Only in this way will well-being and happiness be brought to people's lives. What is happening to the Uyghurs is one of the worst human rights abuses in the world today. We cannot in the autumn of 2021, Ennis Cantor was a centre for the NBA's Boston Celtics. He was using that platform to make a statement on social media. Heartless dictator of China, Xi Jinping, and the Communist Party of China. I'm calling you out right now in front of the whole world. Close down the slave labor camps and free the Uyghur people. Ennis grew up in Turkey. He moved to the US in his teens to pursue a basketball career. Over his years in the NBA, he'd been critical of Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Authorities back home harassed and even jailed his family members for it. They rescinded Ennis's passport and issued a warrant for his arrest. But Ennis felt his activism was supported in the NBA, especially with the commissioner encouraging players not to stick to sports. Adam Silver, the commissioner, and my teammates, my organisations that I played for, uh, they've been all, all, always so, so supportive for sure, besides this China thing. By 2021, Ennis was on to another cause, the China thing. He was reading more and more about the Uyghurs, fellow Muslims. And the more I read, the more I was ashamed with myself. I was like, I cannot believe the last 10 years I was only focusing on one dictatorship. I mean, it's understandable because of my family. But then the, the more I researched, then there's a link popped out. I clicked on it. It was about Tibet. And the next day, Taiwan was on the news. You know, China is my invade Taiwan. I was like, whoa. At the Celtics' first game that October, Ennis wore a custom pair of sneakers. Free Tibet was painted on them. Before tip-off, he says a couple of Celtics equipment managers came up to him. They said, we are begging you, please take your shoes off. I'm like, what are you talking about? They said, you, you've been getting a lot of attention because of the shoes. The, the game hasn't started yet. You have to take your shoes off. It was a perfect time because I was getting ready for my citizenship test. And I remember that, that I'm like, there are 27 amendments, First Amendment, freedom of speech. I'm like, you cannot take my First Amendment from me. The Celtics president has said the staffers were merely asking Ennis whether the shoes violated the league dress code. 
and that he told Ennis he had the team's support in speaking out. Ennis didn't play that day, although he'd played in each of the preseason games, but the damage had already been done. Xi Jinping, I have a message for you and your henchmen. He'd posted a video on social media before the game. Tibet belongs to Tibetans. They are not allowed to study and learn their language and culture freely. And in a halftime, I went back to my locker room. I looked at my phone. There were thousands of notifications. But I, obviously, I clicked on my uh, manager, Hank. He said, every Celtics games are banned in China the rest of the year. Celtics games were scrubbed from the Chinese streaming service that carried the NBA. That was surely a costly decision on the part of the streaming service, but they had the Communist Party to answer to. A major Celtics fan page on Chinese social media vowed to stop posting about the team. And after the game, it was a huge mess. I talked about Turkey for 10 years. I did not get one phone call. I talked about China one day. My phone was ringing once every hour. Ennis was undeterred. At Game 2, he wore a Uyghur-themed pair of shoes. Game 3, a pair about the Tiananmen Square massacre. And he got some playing time. Adam Silver, the league's commissioner, has said he assured Ennis he was completely within his rights to say whatever he wanted. The Celtics coach denied that Ennis's limited minutes on the court were at all connected to his footwear. There were just better players on the team, he said. In February 2022, on the day of the season's trade deadline, the Celtics dealt Ennis to the Houston Rockets. Ironic, Ennis says. It was the Rockets' general manager who got in trouble with that Hong Kong tweet. The Rockets cut him shortly afterwards. Ennis hasn't played in the NBA since, but he's continued speaking up. I came across his story in an article by the writer George Packer in The Atlantic magazine. Ennis has had a bit of good news, though. He's become an American citizen. To mark the occasion, he changed his name. Ennis Cantor is now Ennis Cantor Freedom. In March 2022, Chinese state media started showing NBA games again. The commissioner... Adam Silver has said the league lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the blackout that began with that tweet from Daryl Morey about Hong Kong. Silver told reporters, Others since then have spoken out about their views around China and other places in the world. And if the consequences are that we're taken off the air or we lose money, we accept that. I talk to my teammates a lot. You know, they're like, listen, man, I think what you're doing is so inspiring. We love what you're doing. We actually support you, or we just cannot do it out loud. I was asking him why. And I get back, you know, a lot of answers. Shoe deals, Nike deals, uh, endorsement deals, jersey sales, shoe sales in China, and branding. I just wish one, one current player, good, bad, starter, bench, but whoever, you know, just came out and say, oh, I support us. There is not one. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm pausing the story for a brief moment to remind you that if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. I work with the best China correspondents in the business. Every week, they write about all kinds of fascinating China stories, often in very difficult circumstances. To read their coverage, and so much more, you'll need a subscription to The Economist. It's really easy to sign up. Visit economist.com slash chinapod 
for our best offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Now, on with the story. In making this podcast, the production team and I had a little debate. Could we fairly call Xi Jinping the most powerful person in the world? Is he more powerful than, say, an American president or any tech billionaire? Here's the case in Xi Jinping's favour. He controls an organisation, the Communist Party, of nearly 100 million members. That organisation controls a country of 1.4 billion people. Unlike in a major democracy, Xi Jinping doesn't answer to a legislature, or an electorate for that matter. And unlike at a big company, he commands a military. That sort of power gives him many ways to keep people quiet. If you're a Uyghur in China, you could be imprisoned and exiled, like Abdueli. If you're outside of China, and maybe not even Chinese, say, a member of the Boston Celtics basketball team, the size of the Chinese market and the threat of closing it off can induce self-censorship. The market, the money, pulls even those tech bosses and foreign leaders into China's orbit. Apple, for example, had the biggest market share in China among smartphone makers there as of the end of 2021. China's also where Apple assembles the majority of its devices. Apple didn't get there without making a few compromises. The company's been accused of using forced Uyghur labour in its supply chains and of lobbying against an American bill called the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act. An Apple spokesman disputed that. He said the company supported the bill and found no forced labour in its supply chains. I believe strongly in freedoms. They're at the core of what an American is. Tim Cook, Apple CEO, defended the company's work in China in 2017. He'd been asked about having to pull services from the Chinese app store to acquiesce to Communist Party demands. Uh, But I also know that each country in the world decides their laws and their regulations. And and so your, your choice is, do you participate? Or do you stand on the sideline and yell at how things should be? And my own view very strongly is you show up and you participate. You get in the arena because nothing ever changes from the sideline. And if your company's on the fence over whether to yell from the sidelines or participate, China will make you choose. In 2020, Western fashion brands like H&M and Nike responded to public pressure over reports that their cotton suppliers in China used forced Uyghur labour. They put out a statement of concern. Chinese social media users pushed back. They pledged to boycott those Western fashion companies and instead support brands who proudly displayed made-with-Xinjiang cotton labels. So what's a business to do? A lot of those companies now say they don't know whether their Chinese suppliers are using forced labour. China won't let them visit Xinjiang to find out. At the end of August, the United Nations published a long-awaited report on human rights abuses in Xinjiang. It said China's mass detention of Uyghurs, quote, may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. 
In addition to physical abuse, it said reports of sexual violence appeared credible. The Communist Party denies any such abuse. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said at a news briefing that the report was based on disinformation and lies orchestrated by America and the West. A few months earlier, Xi Jinping published an article on China's human rights record. He wrote that China shouldn't be judged on other countries' double standards and that human rights shouldn't be a tool to interfere in other countries' internal affairs. Abdueli lived in Turkey for four years after he escaped China in 2015. He'd wanted to move on from Turkey to some other country, but he got stuck because China cancelled his passport. I went to Chinese embassy and they told me that you have to work with us. If you work with us, we can renew your passport. If you will not, you cannot have it. The embassy was trying to recruit Abdueli as a spy. This is part of a broader strategy by the Communist Party to co-opt the Uyghur diaspora. It sets up sham NGOs claiming to represent Uyghur rights, while infiltrating legitimate ones, all to whitewash its activities in Xinjiang. For Abdueli, working with the Chinese authorities would mean providing information on his contacts at international Uyghur groups. The embassy said, give us their addresses, phone numbers, flight details, hotels and report on their plans. I said, no, I don't want to do that. Instead, he talked to international media, passing along information from his contacts in Xinjiang. Back home, Abdueli's family suffered the consequences. His brother was arrested in 2017. Then, one of his sisters got arrested too. It was hard on the whole family, he says, especially his younger sister. She is the last one who deleted me from the WeChat. All of my other brothers deleted me. And she deleted me because of, she said, like, brother, the police is knocking at the door. They are collecting our cell phones. And if they see your WeChat, on my cell phone, they will arrest me. So um, I will delete you. And then she got arrested. Did you think about not speaking out? If I stop this, who is going to do this? And who is going to tell this to the media? It is hard because there are the people who keep sending me messages from homeland, from diaspora. He was also getting contacted by NGOs and journalists. Deciding whether to reply or to stay quiet was hard on his mental health. I uh, had a problem with my kids and I had problem with my wife and I couldn't sleep. At one point, he talked to a psychiatrist about it. She told me to stop, but I couldn't stop. And second time, she told me that keep going. It's better to you <laughs> psychologically because you feel you are useful. You feel you are something important when you are doing this. 
So I should keep doing this, yeah. When Abdueli was a kid, he liked to sing songs, folk music. There were two kinds, red songs and yellow songs. Red songs means the song praise Communist Party, praise like communist ideology, praise Mao Zedong, those we call it the red song. And about love, about like Uyghur hero, about Uyghur life, those songs we call it yellow songs. He remembers a particularly proud moment in his childhood. When he was six, he performed a song by a Uyghur musician for a theatre full of people. The song is about how he missed his uh, beloved one in um, Uyghurland. It's like, Aydın keçlerde baktım yolunga. The Communist Party wants more of the country to speak Mandarin. That might be fine if the millions of ethnic minorities in China were also allowed to learn their own languages. But the party is passing language laws and shutting down schools, like Abdueli's, to suppress minority languages. Yes, like Uyghur, but also Tibetan, Mongolian and Korean. That's millions of families struggling to pass along their mother tongue to their kids, struggling to relate to one another. Why do we learn Uyghur? Since then, if we don't learn it, then we don't know what, and we can't speak to our people. Mm. Who is your people? Roya, Rosa, Anna, Normal Dada, Da, Anna Kashkardike, Gulapa. The Prince is produced by Sam Colbert, Claire Reed, Barclay Bram and me. Our sound designer is Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. We couldn't have made this without the help of some very brave people we can't name. For more of The Economist's China coverage, get the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash chinapod.